phonemic awareness, curriculum, instruction, and does it have to be done in the dark? It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs. I'm a former fourth grade teacher and instructional coach and a current elementary literacy coordinator for a local school district. I also hold a PhD in curriculum instruction that specialized in literacy and leadership from Utah State University. Welcome to the show. This show is all about bridging research to practice. Just a couple items of business before we get to the episode. I want to say a big thanks to those of you that have left a review on Apple or Spotify. That does help get the word out about the show. I'm also especially grateful for those who have shared this podcast with a friend or colleague using word of mouth. That is the biggest way that the podcast is spreading and it is continually spreading. So thank you for those of you that have done that. I'm grateful for the donations that have been trickling in via Venmo and also PayPal. That's being used to pay for the ongoing costs of a podcast. So if you're interested in supporting the show, you can donate via Venmo. It is on the business side, even though this isn't a business, but when you're in Venmo, tap on the business side and you can Venmo me at TeachLit Podcast. You can also go to teachingliteracypodcast.com, click on about your host in the upper right-hand corner, and then there's a link where you can donate securely via PayPal. So with that, let's get to today's episode. Phonemic awareness is a hot topic right now with a range of scholars weighing in on the subject. My guest today reviewed the most popular phonemic awareness curriculum in one state and then compared the practices in those curricula with reported research. Her name is Dr. Kathleen Brown, and she is the director of the University of Utah Reading Clinic in the College of Education. Her work specializes in beginning reading instruction, word recognition instruction, comprehension instruction, intervention models for at-risk and struggling readers, and teacher professional development in reading instruction and intervention. It's a great conversation, and you can tell that Dr. Brown is very passionate about what she talks about. After the discussion, make sure to stick around for Jake's take on the topic. And now, on to the show. Dr. Kathleen Brown, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm pleased to be here, Jake. I'm really excited to have you on the show. We're talking today, there's an article that you published in Reading Research Quarterly, and it's entitled Phonological Awareness Materials in Utah Kindergartens, a Case Study in the Science of Reading. And it's specific to programs that are very popular in Utah, which is a common context for both of us. But uh, you know, these are also common programs nationally. And so I, I, I think the context there will be very applicable to anyone who's using some of these really popular, very common program materials. So b- before we get talking phonological awareness, though, would you provide us a short history of your background, your research interests, and how those became your research interests? Sure, you bet. Well, um, this will make me sound like I'm as old as Methuselah, so... I was a remedial reading teacher back in the 80s, starting in the early 80s when it was called remedial reading. So you worked with kids who were struggling. And I worked with, my task was to work with children who uh, couldn't read. And they were in junior high and high school. Couldn't read worth a bang, you know, first grade reading levels. Many of them English learners. 
And so I was tasked with helping them learn to read better. Well, I had come up within the heyday of whole language and had been taught, and I use that term loosely, taught, not to, ha not to do any phonics, just read to kids, immerse them in authentic literature and, you know, magio presto, they will start to learn to read. And after I fell on my face for, you know, a couple of years doing that, I realized I wanted to go back to school and uh, get a degree basically in curriculum because I figured somebody out there had to know how to teach kids how to read. And you know, I don't like failure and I was failing. So I ended up at the University of Utah with some fabulous reading teacher ed folks who are also great researchers. And I got a really good understanding of comprehension and comprehension instruction, but nothing in beginning reading. And so, you know, if you don't know beginning reading and you're working with beginning readers, you're going to be in trouble. So I ended up doing the equivalent of a postdoc with Daryl Morris who comes out of that UVA <clears throat> tradition, Ed Henderson, Marcia Invernizzi, Don Bear, Shane Templeton. If you think of words their way, okay? So Daryl is, took the intervention route, whereas the other folks took the curriculum route. So they were producing curriculum materials. So I did two years with Daryl. Uh, he trained a large group of Utah folks down in, you know, um, down in the Salt Lake area in his program or his, I, I shouldn't say program, his model for reading intervention for little kids, for beginning readers called early steps. And there's, there's a few articles in the literature on that gets great results. And then the, so it works with kids who are really beginning readers. You gotta, have, you gotta know 16 letter names and that's it. You can get started. And then another model for reading, basic reading intervention called next steps. Um, and that's in the literature under various names, Howard Street, Next Steps, uh, Book Buddies. That we, oh, no. Yeah. Um, the notion there is kids who are kind of stuck in that fledgling stage of things where they're like, they can read a little bit. They probably have maybe 30 to 50 high frequency words in their sub vocabulary. But, you know, so fro like frog and toad or not even quite frog and toad, more like a uh, uh, Danny the dinosaur ability. I try to use these 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 names that most many people are aware of, but they they're stuck. They're stuck between a mid first grade and an end second grade level, flat out stuck. So there's a model there that we use called Next Step. So I did postdoc a postdoc with Daryl in those models, and frankly, um, that was the beginning of my career. In that I finally had the tools to help other educators will understand and help advance reading development for kids where the reading development doesn't go swimmingly, so to say. And um, then talk about a confluence of fabulous things. Um, the legislature agreed to fund the University of Utah's, our reading, uh, the reading clinic, right? And so we are still partially, I shouldn't say partially, um, almost, I'd say three quarters funded by the state. And then we cobbled together grants and fee-for-service and other things. But um, I was lucky enough to be chosen to spearhead the development of that organization. And uh, 22 years later, I'm still here. And we've, we're a statewide organization. We do research. We do professional development. We have um, on-site and virtual services for kids all over the state.
So that's where we are. And it's, I got to say, not many reading professors get to do what I do. I'm very lucky, very blessed. And that, that, that sort of trajectory is, is wonderful. And one of the things that, you know, has drawn me to, to this article specifically and to the work you're doing at the U is, is you know, this, this show is all about bridging literacy, research and practice. And, and uh, you know, in your role position, you've been able to straddle that very, very well for 22 years of, you know, as a, you know, as an academic, you can consume the research and you know where to find the research and how to interpret the research. But where you're running the clinic, you also, you have living, breathing kids that, that you get a road test it with and, and, mm-hmm. and apply it. And so, and I, I think that mentality will come clear throughout the course of the conversation of that very pragmatic sense. You know, we can, we're kindred spirits here. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the kindred spirit there. Totally. Um, so, you know, phonological awareness, it's been a really hot topic lately with, uh, you know, the term science of reading becoming very popular and, and letters training happening, you know, nationally with a lot of folks learning about phonological awareness for the first time or, or getting much more technical with it than they have, you know, in, in, if they already knew about it. Um, so just as a recap for folks who are listening, can you provide an overview of the development of phonology and especially its synergy with orthography and how we just might think how we can approach thinking about phonological awareness. Yeah, you bet. And I think this is a fundamental piece that if we could just get this piece in pre-service teacher candidates' heads and all the way through their careers, I think it would make it so much easier for them to look at something like, say, Hegarty or Wonders or New York Reading or whatever, you know, all these different programs. If they could have this conceptual piece about reading development, right? Internalized and never lines, I think it would help. And so here's how it works. You've got, if you want to think about three systems, phonology, um, semantics, right? Semantics, knowledge, and orthography. Those three systems are fundamental for reading. So if you think about a little kid, even from infancy, right? They start to pick up phonology. So, you know, Oh, look who's here. Look who came in. There's our first doggy or whatever. There's Rusty. Oh, do you see Rusty? And, you know, pretty soon the kid starts swiveling his head when he hears the term Rusty, right? For the dog. That's, that shows that there is a phonological representation in the mind, in that baby's mind. There's, when you, when the kid hears Rusty and looks for the dog, you know, there's a phonological, think of the words, phonological representation in memory. Okay. There's also a semantic representation hooked up to that phonological representation. The kid knows it's the dog, right? So that you've got semantics, you got phonology. And those build throughout infancy, toddlerhood, preschool years, until the kid's mind is hopefully flooded with bonded phonological and semantic representations for all kinds of things. We know, of course, that that's the foundation for oral language. And we also know that some kids lack sufficient representations in memory to really do well in school. I'm talking about kids whose oral language is not what we would hope it would be. Okay, and kid goes to school. Let's say the kid doesn't know how to read any words, but knows letter names and sounds. So I'm going to use the example of the word tag. Okay, tag. Don't picture it, just listen to it. Tag. Because you ain't got no orthography yet. There is no orthography in memory. But when someone says the word tag to a kindergartner or a first grader, 
a kid might think about the tag on the back of his shirt. There's a tag there. The kid might think about recess, playing tag at recess. Can you think of any other semantic representations for the, for the phonology, the sound of the word tag? Like a, like a tag on a, like on a shirt or something, you know, like, like that. Yeah. Tag on a shirt, playing the game tag, uh, tag your it. I'm trying to think of another tag. Uh, that's okay. Two is good because you just want to know that there's multiple for many words, right? Well, kindergarten and first grade teachers, their chore is to help build the orthographic representation in memory for the word tag. Okay. And we know, of course, that it's T-A-G, but it doesn't just spring into the line. It has to be taught. Now, we'll say some kids show up in kindergarten, they can already read the word tag. They can already read the word uh, amortization, but they learned it somewhere. Okay. They didn't spring like Athena, full blown from the womb, reading amortization or tag. They learned it somewhere. Someone taught them the basics, right? We know the vast majority of kids show up in kindergarten at the beginning of the year and can't read the word tag yet. Okay, some can, but many can't. So how do you get that representation in memory, the orthography of the letters T-A-G for the phonology, for the phonological representation, tag, the word tag, the sound of it, tag, okay? Because what we want to have happen down the road is we want the phonology, the orthography, and the meaning, the semantics, all bonded, amalgamated in memory. This is Linnea Aries' work, okay? All bonded in memory so that when the child sees the orthography in print, the letters T-A-G, you get uh, in parallel processing in the line that allows all three types of knowledge, phonological, orthographic, and semantic, activated in memory at once. The kid knows when he sees TAG, knows I, it's tag. I, it could be, maybe it's the one on the back of my shirt. Maybe it's the game. And then context helps you choose which one's appropriate in that, um, in that particular piece of text. I will say that the context is last, 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 and only used when needed. That's the opposite of what whole language says. So phonology and orthography for readers must be bonded together and they develop in sort of a bootstrapping way. Okay. So if you don't know, if you don't know any letters yet, it's hard to get going. You know, we know that kids need to have a certain knowledge of alphabet names and sounds, which then helps the phonology develop. Right, being able to pull off the first sound. Well, what say tag, Jake? Tag. What What do you hear at the beginning? Say tag. I hear t. t, t. There you go. Yeah. Kids can't do that until they know some orthography, and then as the ability to pull off first sound comes, I hear t. You know, then you continue to work on more letters, their names. And so when I say, say tag, Jake. Tag. I want you to hit that last sound, tag. Tag. What do you hear at the end, what sound? G. What letter says G? G. There you go, okay. So 
you see these things stair step together, they bootstrap on each other. They facilitate each other. Uh, Linnea, I think, calls it reciprocal causation. You can't have one without the other. You can't do them in a vacuum. So people who want to do, let's do all the early phonological tasks now, and then later we'll get to the orthography. It's not smart because these things need to be done intentionally, thoughtfully together based on what we know from research about how they develop, which aspects of orthography enable kids to progress in phonological awareness. See, I'm using that term now, or phonemic awareness, because the phonemic awareness is where the money is. Phonemic is, that's where the money is, and we know that. We also know that there are phonological, bigger units than phonemes that develop first, but the, the coin of the realm is phonemic awareness. And we know that to really get there, and I always think to myself, like, why would you want to develop phonemic awareness that wasn't related to orthography? Nobody's going to get a job as a phonemic aware, a highly phoneme aware, uh, I don't know, master, Zen master. It's all about the orthography. It's all about the reading, the phonology, the phonemic awareness enables better development of representations and memory for the orthography. So, for example, let's go back to our word tag. Jake knows that when he says tag, say tag, Jake. Tag. What's the first sound? What do you hear? T. What says T? T. Excellent. Okay. Say tag. Tag. <laughs> what's the last, what's the last sound you can hear? Good. What says G? G. Okay. Okay. Elbows up. We're going to go for that middle sound. Okay. Ready? So watch me. Tag. G. Tag. Your turn. Say tag. Tag. Help it out. T. Uh. Okay, good job. Now we're going to really push for that middle sound. Say tag. Tag. Tap it out. Ah. Uh, Stay there. Go like this. Ah, 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 ah. What says ah? A. Nice job. Now we're going to write that. Okay? We're going to spell that. Because here's the deal. It's not enough to just have you doing these things like a trained seal without writing them down or looking at them in print or sounding across the word letter by letter. The, the, the synergy there between the phonology and the orthography is, is super critical. And that's when you, when you read Linnea Aries' work, I think that comes through very clear of that. We care about those because that's, that's where the processing of print happens is we're connecting the visual print that we're seeing we're automatically or, or very efficiently retrieving the sounds from that, and then we're connecting it to meaning based on the specific syntax. And, uh, you know, so I have a preschooler, and this was last night as we're, we're putting our kids to bed. So I have a preschooler, and then we also have a little four-month-old girl named Hattie. And, uh, you know, the, the five-year-old or the five-year-old preschooler, Elliot, he's been he's been doing some phonological tasks and phonemic stuff in preschool. And, you know, we, we value literacy in our home, so... You know, I, I have guinea pigs that I can poke and prod with. And and yeah. this was unprompted. We just, he was, he was getting his pajamas out of the drawer and he goes, Hattie, Hattie, mom, Hattie starts with H. And, you know, my wife was, was there. And so, you know, the, the, the skill, I mean, I was looking at, I thought that and I said, okay, so he just, he isolated a single phoneme 
And then he connected that phoneme to its orthographic representation to know, hey, Hattie starts with H. So, you know, he, he's, he's a pre-reader, right? Preschool. He's not processing print yet. But if I, if I could, but he knows the first word in Hattie because he was able to do some of these phonological and orthographic tasks, but it was the synergy of the stacking both of them together that, I mean, it would have been cool if he would have just said, oh, Hattie starts with, I thought that would have been neat. But the fact that he took it that extra step to say H, I was like, all right, we're on, we're on a good path here. Just, you know, they, people used to say this, oh, he's barking at print, you know, ooh, bad, barking, barking, bad, I don't know what it means. He's barking. Well, you know, I always want to say sometimes barking at phony, barking with phonemes. Yeah. Is it good they can isolate the phonemes? Yeah, but the coin of the realm is to tie it to the orthography. And when we forget that, and these these programs that are out there forget that, or I guess I shouldn't say they forget that, they don't maximize the opportunity. I shouldn't even say that. Sometimes they don't even access the opportunity at all. They don't access the opportunity to tie it to the orthography. And that's my, the bulb that I pick in the article with, and I'm, I'm happy to say who it is. It's Haggerty is the supplementary program. Wonders is the core program. Wonders is used by, oh, I don't know, large percentage of Utah kindergartners, right? And in those pro programs, they do uh, phonemic awareness training. Haggerty also does, well, both programs do what I would call phonological awareness training pre-phoneme type levels, like being able to split on separate lines. So say snack, okay? Snack. If I said, what's left? Ack. So we're, that's splitting on separate lines. We're not at the phoneme level there. The phonemes for the word snack would be snack, right? So I'm talking, so these programs really appropriately place a lot of importance on the phoneme level. Okay. Yes. But to approach the phoneme level without using orthography is wrongheaded. People, and here's the, here's the uh, comments I get from people all over the state. Well, but it's good. Well, yeah, you know, I guess so. I mean, I wouldn't say it's good because I would say it's not maximizing what kids need to do, what kids need to learn in order to be able to navigate print. Okay. You're doing phonemic awareness and isolation without letters, okay, um, you're not maximizing your opportunity because here's why, here's why he's saying, oh, but it still will be, it's okay. It's, it's, it'll be good. Here's the problem with saying that. Teachers have no, not enough time. We know that teachers are drowning in stuff they're supposed to do. And when a district says to them, thou must do X, and they spend 15 minutes doing X, and X is not optimal for kids learning to read, then I say it's not okay. That it would make a lot more sense to do phonemic awareness development, which I will say is critical. Kids who can't isolate phonemes, they're gonna struggle as readers. But it's it's to do phonemic awareness development without tying it to letters. And then later on, so do that for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, when a Hegarty says like, oh, 10 minutes a day or whatever. People think, oh, 10 minutes, whatever. It's not whatever. Because if you're gonna do 10 minutes of Hegarty and then an hour of fill in the blank, your core program, and in your core program that you have more phonemic awareness and isolation, 
And then you tack on phonics where, thank God, they're finally using letters. Okay. That's a lot of time. And something goes by the wayside. And you know what goes by the wayside? Practice reading text. You know, conversations where I've, I've, I've talked about kind of similar things around that synergy and orthography. I've, I felt that that's almost kind of painted me as a, as a phonemic awareness naysayer. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. You, you can't discount that. But we're just trying to say, how do we spend our time in a manner that is both uh, efficient, meaning it works with timing rather than against time, and effective, meaning that it is maximizing our, our outcomes? Those are my two but favorite words, Jake. Those are my two favorite words. Let's be effective. And let's be efficient because we don't have, teachers don't have enough time. I don't know how, I think it's one of the reasons we lose so many teachers out of the, out of the profession every year is they're inundated with demands and for, for how they spend their time. And it's, it's, it's exhausting. And so what powers me and the University of Utah Reading Clinic, you know, everybody on staff, we have a wonderful staff of highly trained folks what powers us is how to help teachers sort of eat the elephant one bite at a time but at the same time get it done right you can only do so much at one time but how can you be efficient effective and efficient at doing that without killing yourself and without wasting kids time now no you're going to get letters saying she said can you make awareness of wasting, wasting kids time I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we need to do phonemic awareness instruction slash development effectively and efficiently. And to do that, we only need to look at research, okay? Instead of looking just at the curriculum materials that are out there, I think we need to look at the research. And that's what we did in, in our piece. And I can see you nodding. That's where you want to go. Um, I'll tell you a little, little anecdote about this. So about six years ago, people in districts, district positions primarily started saying to me, why don't you do phonemic awareness in your intervention models? And I was like, what? You don't do phonemic awareness. And I said, oh yeah, yeah, we do actually. And they said, but you don't do it. You can't do it in the dark. You use letters. If you're not doing oral only phonemic awareness, then you're not doing phonemic awareness. Uh, David Kilpatrick's a big promoter of this. And you see, you will see it in the letters um, instruction as well. Now I love letters. <clears throat> I think letters, Lisa Lotz's content is lovely, but I would like to see them address this area because it's oral only. So I'm, th I'm thinking to myself, when did this come out that you have to do PA Oral only doesn't make any sense. So being an academic geek nerd, you know, I went back into the research and started looking at it and I, you know, and they all, the other thing they said was, here's the other criticism we got. You're not doing it with, you're, you're doing it with letters. You shouldn't be. It needs to be oral only. The other crit criticism we got was you're not doing the advanced levels. You're not doing deletion and substitution. And let's show our listeners what those are. So let's go back to our word snack, Jake. Say snack. Snack. Say it. Um, say it without mm. Sack. Very good. So what sound did you do? Uh, mm is what I Her deleted. 
Right. Okay. So you deleted it. Now say snack. Snack. Instead of say oh. Slack. And, and I'm going to tell our listeners what you did. Jake looked up to the top of his head off to the right. And what were you doing there, Jake? Uh, I was thinking. And what were you doing? What were you doing in your mind? I, I, I think I made the word in my head. I mean, if I'm being completely honest, I think I had the letter snack and I replaced the N with an L. And then I went from the letters back to the sound and, and said slack. That's what people do when they do deletion and substitution tasks. The only people who can do those tasks are people that are already reading. You used an orthographic representation, right? What was the orthography you used? Spell it out. Uh, well, S-N-A-C-K, and then after it was S-L-A-C-K. You were using orthography. So curriculum that asks children who, who don't have that orthography yet to do those kinds of tasks, they can't do it. They can't do it. Research is clear on that. So people will say, yeah, but don't we need to teach them to do it? Well, if you can't do it without orthography, then you better teach some orthography with it to get there. And I would maintain that once, once youngsters can do those kind of tasks, they should be reading books rather than spending half an hour a day between the core program and the supplementary program in second and third grade. I think they should be doing, you know, reading and writing and starting to work on morphology and those, that kind of curriculum, rather than practicing deletion and substitution tasks. For kindergartners and first graders to be practicing deletion and substitution tasks is, frankly, I think insane. Teachers will say to me, yeah, but my class can do it. And I would respond, some kids in your class can do it. And then the rest of those, the rest of the kids who can't do it are simply copycatting. They're a quarter of a second behind the top readers in responding. Mm -hmm. and, and some of that too goes to thinking about, you know, okay, a student might improve with, um, you know, the, the oral only aspect of it. And, 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 you know, and so if you were, you know, using the, the Hegarty assessments and that you might see growth in that, but but the real question is, is to what degree is that transferring over to reading words, to alphabet knowledge, to decoding? And, uh, and, and so that's, I think, question one, but then question two then also becomes, but is there a more effective, efficient way to do it? Which, which is back, back to your point of, you know, really, it sounds like to me, the, those advanced phonemic tasks, but there's not, from my read of it, is there, there isn't really data supporting you know, oral only aspects of it, but that's going to continue to develop as you're teaching phonics and as you're blending and segmenting and manipulating actual words. And, and that's maybe a different take on phonological awareness than kind of the, the never the twain shall meet. We have phonological awareness over here and we have phonics instruction over here, but, and, and, and alphabet knowledge instruction here, but really we're thinking about, you know, I sort of think it's a hierarchical model, right? We're, we're stacking one on top of the other and, and, and the lower level skill will still develop as we're promoting the higher level skill that, you know, that, which is maybe a different way than our, than listeners have, you know, have, have thought about it. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense, Jake. And um, let's just talk about advanced phonemic awareness for a second, you know, doing tasks like deletion and substitution. I'll just leave it with that. Okay. The doing the deletion and substitution tasks we just talked about. Okay. There are no data 
there are no studies that suggest that that um, promotes kids' reading ability or spelling ability. All right, I'll just leave it with that. There are no studies. Now, David Kilpatrick will tell you, oh, yes, there are. But what, what he's done is he's cherry-picked other people's work and reinterpreted it in a way that they never interpreted it in their published articles. Okay. Torgerson and his colleagues, prime example. Torgerson and his colleagues did not draw that conclusion. Okay. And geez, I think they would have. Joe Torgerson is a pretty smart guy. I think Joe Torgerson and his colleagues would have drawn that conclusion or that interpretation had they seen that in their data. They did not. Uh, Kilpatrick says that the NRP is ripe with examples. I think he wouldn't use the word ripe, but he would say there's plenty of support in the NRP. Excuse <clears throat> me, for advanced anemic awareness tasks. And why didn't they put it in the NRP? It's not there. In preparation for this article, we went back and reviewed the NRP, the phonetic section, phonemic awareness, and uh, phonics. So we looked at the NRP, the National Early Literacy Report, okay, which came out in 2008. So you've got 2000 to 2008, his book is there. We went on and looked at everything up to whenever we published, I don't know, 2019. There are still, were no published studies in high quality peer refereed journals supporting the use of uh, advanced phonemic awareness curriculum in classrooms towards reading and spelling development. Zero. Zip. Zilch. I find it hard to support spending a bunch of instructional time on those activities when 20, well, uh, the NRP goes back to Dolly, I don't know, the 80s. So like between 1980 and 2019, I find it hard to say, oh, but we still should do it. And I'm not going to go back. I'm not, I don't think it's appropriate to cherry pick other people's work and say, oh, it really says this. Yeah. I'm not saying you can't take a critical eye to other people's research. Of course you can. But if you want to build a theory, okay, if you want to build a theory, you better have empirical results beyond saying what you think somebody else's work says. And to me, I see that that being the next step that for some of the these advocates of of advanced phonemic awareness tasks being done oral only, it's for me, it's OK, then you need to set up a, a really high quality quasi experimental study or an RCT. If you feel that that's really well supported, then um, conduct a study and publish it. And then then let's then let's talk is. I didn't know. That's my approach. No, I agree. Developer reading recovery, which has some nice pieces, but boy, it didn't have any phonics. My mentor, Daryl Morris, said to Maureen Clay, this is back in the early 80s, you know, I like your model, but I sure think it would do better with some explicit phonics. She didn't agree. And you know what she said, you know, go get the data. And that's what Daryl did. And that's where the evolution comes from. I, I think it's interesting that this the squabbling back and forth that's happening over advanced PA and you know, Shanahan had an article in his blog about it a while back of saying, hey, he says, I'll wait for the data. And that's kind of where I, I stand, too, of let's spend our time, let's sink our time in practice. We know are high quality and then let the let the research evolve in other areas before we make rash decisions of, you know, that, what what is or not going to benefit our students. So I think we've, we've had a pretty good background here on phonology and orthography. So 
in this specific study, you reviewed commercial phonological awareness programs that uh, districts within Utah specifically were using, because that's obviously your context. Um, so can you just provide a brief overview of, of how you designed the study and then what the specific goals or research questions were? Sure. The impetus for the study came from people saying, you're not doing phonemic awareness right. It has to be oral only. That's what the research says. And people saying, oh, that we need, you're not doing advanced tasks. That's what the research says. Well, since it didn't, my understanding of the research didn't say that at all. So I thought, I, maybe I missed something. I'm going to go back and I'm going to, I'm going to really look at this because could be I have egg on my face here. So we got into it. And um, so at that point, people, a lot of people in the state were using Wonders and Hagerty, like a lot. And I'm going to just talk briefly about that. So let me go back to our research question. So the questions we were asking to get, to get into it was, is is everybody doing this in Utah? To what extent are Utah school districts providing commercial PA materials? You know, in other words, you buy it from somebody. It's a program to primary grade classrooms. And then we wanted to ask, are some of those commercial materials more widely used than others? And then to what extent, and this is where we got specific, to what extent are the most widely used PA materials in Utah kindergarten classrooms consistent with the research consensus. And we define the research consensus as the NRP, the NELP, you know, National Early Literacy Project, yeah, project and subsequent research. So again, that's that big swath of time we were just talking about. Okay, so we, I wrote to every district, email or called people on the phone in 19, 2019, excuse me, 2021. 42,000 kindergarten, kindergarten students, sorry, 42,000 kindergarten students, 41 districts, and contacted each, uh, each district and asked them, what's your core program for kindergarten, and do you use Hegarty? Okay, because, you know, I knew that Hegarty was a supplemental program, and I knew it was widely used. And so, you know, meanwhile, we were looking at the data, et cetera, et cetera. So we started looking very closely because... Guess, get this, I thought this was fabulous. We got 41 of, 40, 41 of 41 districts reported. I think that's pretty dang good. 50% of those 41 districts were using wonders and 60, oh, let's just say 66% using, using Hegarty. 31% were using both Hegarty and wonders. So the way we ended up really crunched the numbers, it's 85%, 85% of the 42,000 kindergarten kids in that year had either Hagerty or Wonders. So it was available to 85% and 31% of those kids got both. That's a lot. And I, I just to kind of pause and, and kind of scale that of thinking that 85% is a lot of students that are receiving, you know, at least one of these in some form or another. And in thinking about, about curriculum, the content of curriculum really, really matters. And I, sometimes it's easy just to kind of throw curriculum under the bus. And curriculum does a lot of great and wonderful and fantastic things. But at the same time, to, to assume that the curriculum is quote unquote complete, right? Or to, to assume that, I mean, that there's always going to be some adaptation that I, I think is required for contextual fit. But 
you know, you specifically with these programs went and looked at how consistent those were with the research consensus finds we talked about, but also you looked at the specific tasks and scope and sequence. Maybe let's first talk about the types of tasks, phonological tasks that were in these, these programs and their scope and sequence. What did you find in these two programs? Uh, you had a bevy, a veritable bevy of tasks. I mean, you can talk about phoneme isolation, phoneme manipulation, um, phoneme identification, phoneme segmentation, phoneme blending, uh, and then as well, the difficult tasks, deletion and substitution, an enormous slate of tasks in both programs, okay, starting from the first week of school, going all the way through the last week of school. We went into both Hagerty and Wonders. I went through every single lesson in Wonders and Hagerty for kindergarten, every single lesson, and we laid out in the matrix all the types of tasks, when they were introduced, samples of what the tasks look like, how many percentage of use across the year. So we have a very clear understanding of, of what both of those programs ask of teachers and kindergartners. A main takeaway I found was the tasks being very broad and some of them not even being very, you know, evidence-based. So what types of tasks, you know, you said that there's a, a wide bevy of it. What, what, yeah, give us some examples of of tasks and how those might be arranged across a week or a month or a, or a year. Okay. So here, here's an example of a, a phoneme isolation task that's pretty, pretty common. So if I said, say, sack, sing, sob. Sack, sing, sob. What sound is in all of those? Okay. And you could ask that a little better. If I could have said, what sound do you hear at the beginning of all of those? Okay. So you heard, okay, that's a, that's a kind of a common working at the initial phoneme level, right? Type task. So like, I might say something like, so this is how phoneme awareness develops. The initial sound is the easiest, the ending sound is the next easiest and the middle is the hardest. If you're not reading yet, if you're not reading some words and some text fairly adeptly. You can't get to that middle sound because that middle sound is co-articulated with the initial and final sound. It's smooshed in the middle. And to be able to hear that middle sound, you need to be able to segment those phonemes, right? If you're not reading yet, it's going to be really hard to do that. That's again, the synergy we're talking about or the reciprocal causation where uh, the orthography enables phonology and the phonology enables the orthography. So that's a fairly easy task. Now, what I would say to people is, wow, if, the, if I can say, say, sack, sing, sob, and Jake can tell me that the first sound he hears is, why the heck would you not have Jake pick out the S from a, you know, a string of letters up on the board or better yet, write the letter S. Just doing it right then and there. Yeah right then and there. And people would say, oh, you're confounding. It's not oraloni. Oh, you're not doing phonemic awareness instruction. <clears throat> what I would say is to be efficient and, and to be effective and efficient, you don't want to do it oraloni. Anytime you have a chance to hook letters up to that by writing them or picking them out or sliding an you know, into an alcohol box, not, the, not stupid red and green and blue tiles without letters on them, 
put the letters on them. And I know some people do this, but some people do all this. Oh, if it's a vowel, it's red. And if it's a consonant, it's blue. And kids, why go there? Why teach a different system? Teach the system they're going to need to know. Absolutely. Now, let me give, let me give you another example. Okay. This is from week three in wonders. All right. I think the teacher probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. The teacher probably does this. Okay. Say, so Jake, your, your goal here, all right. Say book. If you hear, if you hear book, if you hear book, well, you just did what a kid would do. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I just following the teacher's directions here. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Wait for me to finish, Jake. (laughs) Okay. If you hear book at the end, say book. Ready? Dab. Weren't you thinking about what to say? I was. Yeah. I was like, wait, wait, what are my instructions again? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Say bad. Bad. But, There's no oh, book. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. Okay. You have your doctor, right? I, I do. Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> Say, all right, no, I'm, no, sorry. Rewind. Let's do this task again. Listen to me. If you hear book, say book. If you don't hear book, don't say anything, okay? Ready? Dab. Book. Bad. Ball. Crib. Okay. Week three of kindergarten. What are the cognitive demands on the child to do that? For me, just performing that task, I I felt uh, just keep like the instruction, like just like, okay, so what were my instructions again? Okay, I have to listen to the word. And then when I hear but in the word, then I have to say but. So, I mean, it. I was. And where? Where in the word? At the end of the word. Yeah. And then there was confounding where it was. You know, the other words had it at the beginning and yeah, that was, I, it, it took, I, it took cognitive demand for me to be able to, um, to do it. And I was able to do it, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't automatic by any means. Week three, but no, week 16, sorry. I'm looking at my notes wrong. It's week 16, but it's kindergarten. Week yeah. 16 in kindergarten in, in wonders. Okay. So notice the kind of difficulty level i said bad it's got a book in there but it's at the beginning i said ball it's got a book but it's at the beginning so they're not supposed to say book right i mean i would consider that a gotcha task it's the child has to hold the word in memory and then listen for the ending cell if the child in kindergarten and, you know, that'd be like, wait, well, six, week 16, it'd be what, like December, oh, yeah. maybe? Yeah, about, yeah. Kind of almost mid-year. If that child can pull off ending sounds at all yet. I'm not talking first grade. I'm talking kindergarten. Now, if the kid, there are kids in the class who are already reading, oh, they're, they can do that. You know, those kids can do it. And so those kids, so what you end up getting is a lot of this. So uh, you got to. 25 kindergartners in front of you, right? And they say, the teacher says, bad. And some of them hear the book at the beginning and go, whoa. And then when the smart kids, quote, smart kids, when the smart kids don't say, the kid goes, right? They were like, oh, I'm not supposed to say that because they're copycatting on each other. And then there's some kids who don't even know what the teacher is talking about because they don't even know their letter names yet. And they're copycatting in a way that it's not necessarily giving them an exposure to cement the skill. They're just, getting along to getting along, you know, in order to get along type thing. I'm looking at the 
the scope and sequence of the phonological awareness tasks on the supplemental program. So table three in your article. And, and what strikes me is kind of the scope and sequence of how tasks are introduced throughout the year. So, you know, for example, in, in week one, it's doing things like repeating rhyming words. So repeating hop, mop, hop, mop, and then isolating final phonemes. And so, you know, obviously you know, a phonemic task, especially, you know, at the end of words going to be more complex than just doing a rhyming word. But if we look at like week five, we're blending syllables, segmenting syllables, adding syllables, deleting syllables, and substituting syllables. No research on that, I would say. And There's no research on doing things like, like that with syllables. You know, there are no studies saying that that's a good thing to do. What they did is they took tasks from a phoneme level and pushed them into the syllable level, thinking, oh, this will be a good idea. It's not research-based. And so that's, so there's kind of a double whammy there, where not only is it not research-based, but also those tasks are, are conceivably, those are going to be less complex than isolating final phonemes that students were expected to do, you know, in, in week one. And so the, the, it, it's the, the way that looking at the scope and sequence feels is it's not a, a gradual um, increase of, of, of skill. It's just kind of a, a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of phonological tasks. And, and, and mind you, yeah, they are phonological tasks a lot of the time and not phonemic tasks as the program is branded, but just kind of a hodgepodge tossed salad thrown together in hopes that, hey, if we just run kids through this 10 minutes a day, they are going to be, uh, you know, phono experts. Well, and, and remember that it's driven by at the end of the year, getting to the advanced tasks, deletion and substitution. So you've got that as your endpoint, right? So you want to You've got to fit that all into that yearly, you know, that that scope and sequence for K1 and 2, right? And so you think, well, we can't wait to wait week nine to be blah, blah. We got to start with that in week three. Here's an, an, another example from um, Wonders. And the instructions are so cognitively difficult. I mean, one of the things I will give you, Haggerty, is they have instructions and they stick with it all year. Thank God. Wonders comes up with, I think, out of the, I think it comes from this. Let's make it fun and interesting and game-like. Okay. But what they end up doing is the instructions become so complicated. Kids, you know, three out of 30 kids can figure out what the task is. And then everybody starts copycatting them. But here's one. Uh, think about, as you do this one, uh, Jake, think about this. I'm going to have you pick the sound that is the same. Him. Sam, jam. Mm. How did you do that? Um, what did you have to do to get that answer right? What, well, what, what I did, I really just on that, I kept the, the sounds from him in my yep. head. And then yep. that second word, once I had two sounds that were, you know, once I had the mm from both of those words, then all I had to do was wait. And it was the mm, right? I've already forgotten. That. Yep. Yeah. Yes, you're right. <laughs> but then but then it was then it was okay. Then when jam comes, then that third word I was checking to double C. Okay, is that also going to have that same word? So it's like all the sounds, here's where one matches up, confirming it with the third is is how I did that. Right. Yeah. Kids have to hold a lot in memory to get these right. And I think that's one of the without looking at any letters. <laughs> okay. So they have to hold sound in memory, then do stuff with those, those words, those phonological representations, him, Sam, and Jam. And that's an easy one. Okay, now let's, let's, let's get crazy. That was week one. All right. You have to, I'm going to say some words and you tell me 
Which one does not belong? Mop, sand, same. Sand? Was that the second word, sand? <laughs> Jake? <laughs> uh, I guess I need to say those again. Which one does, which word does not belong? Mop, sand, same. Yeah, it would be sand, right? Mop. Well, but they... It's not ending sound. Oh, okay. Because I was thinking, well, they both had the, the mop and same, both had mm, which was what I was going for. Oh, I see what you're saying. No, it's, it's in the initial position. Oh, I got you. I got you. So, just, uh, so that was what I was supposed to be listening for. And I just was finding any sounds that had overlap. See, I might be revealing a little bit too much about my phonological skill on this. Folks, but <laughs> why am I listening to this what? garbage if he can't even do kindergarten phonological tasks? Sign yourself up for an assessment at the clinic, Jake. It wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt. So, you know, I guess the, the point here is, uh, you know, in showing that, and that, that really was unscripted. I wasn't messing up on purpose. Imagine what kindergartners do. They all listen for the kids who are already reading and the kids who are very adept at this. So some kids in, a, in any classroom, I think some kids would be really good at this. And I think a lot of them, teachers up there spending 10 minutes saying, okay, here's some sounds. Tell me what word they make. G -er what is it, Jake? Gravity. I could do that one. Very good. That's holding, I think, seven sounds in your head. That's assuming you have the word mm -hmm. gravity in oral language, which lots of kindergartners don't, even those who come from good homes. Okay. So what's that kid? What are the kids who don't know what the heck she's talking about gonna, gonna do? They're gonna cheat off, but whatever the other, the, the, you know, whatever uh, Mackenzie is saying. So the kids watch for what Mackenzie says, and then they echo it, gravity, right behind her. And then the teacher thinks, oh, they're getting it. <laughs> well, Mackenzie's got it. And then I would ask, does Mackenzie need to be doing that? I, would, I think Mackenzie should be reading. And that's a key component here, too, is if, if, they're, if, if, if they are that adept at being able to complete the task, they're probably adept enough that they don't need the task to become a better reader. So, and then, so what I liked about your article as well is you... You then kind of take the scope and sequence and the types of tasks that were provided and the way the instruction was administered. And you said, well, let's compare that with the NRP, the NELP, and then, you know, research post 2008 up until the press of your article. So one consistent research finding is that phonological awareness warrants a strong focus in primary grade curriculum and that it can, it can be delivered effectively by teachers. How did, how did these programs fare with this research finding? Both of them really strong. Both are very consistent in that they, they're consistent with the research and that they do provide a strong focus in primary grade curricula. And I'm pleased to see it there. I mean, I'm as old as Methuselah. I remember back in the early 90s when not a lot of teachers in the field knew what phonological or phonemic awareness was, right? And I was out there going, do it, do it, do it. Come on, we got to do it. We're, we're, not, we're not paying enough attention to this. And uh, I find that's why I find it so hysterical that at this stage of the game, I'm, you know, people will say like, well, you don't do phonemic awareness. So, yeah, I've been doing it a long time, actually. But I'm so I'm so glad to see it represented in commercial programs, commercial materials. My the bone I would pick with it is that it's not 
it's not represented in a way that is optimally effective and efficient based on research. And that kind of is the next, uh, you know, major research consensus is that it should match with students' phonological and orthographic development. And I, and I think folks can already see the writing on the wall, uh, so to speak, right, of, of how you would uh, judge those. But how did these programs fare on that research finding? It's, it's mixed. So in kindergarten, when children have some alphabet knowledge, it's very appropriate to have those children listening for initial sound. So if we're writing a poem about, or not a poem, if we're, we're writing, we just took a walk and we see it's fall, we see leaves on the trees, leaves on the ground. And so we go back to the class, we're writing about what we saw. So kindergartners, everyone say leaves. Leaves. Say leaves. Leaves. What's, hit, tap that first sound. What, say leaves and hit that first sound. Leaves. What sound did you hear? Oh. What says oh? L. Good. Everybody write it down. We're going to spell, okay, and then, and you don't have to spell L-E-A-V-E-S. I would be thrilled if kindergartners got, say, uh, huh, say leaves. Leaves. Anybody hear anything at the end of leaves? Some kids will say, some kids will just copycat whatever their neighbor's saying, right? But, you know, if you had kindergartners spelling L-S for leaves, I would go home and have a party. Let alone Mackenzie, who's going to put an E in there for O-E, or is the or a V, sorry, O-E. You could, how would you, how would have, how would your four-year-old, or maybe this might be next year, spell leaves? I would probably be LVS. If I'm being completely honest, I don't think there'd be a vowel in there. I think it'd be LVS. Exactly. That's showing phonological and orthographic development. Okay. Now for him, I would start pushing him for the vowel because he's got, he's got initial and ending and even a medial consonant phoneme. Pretty dang good, right? So what's missing? The vowel. That's the next thing that needs to happen in development. That's what you push. So phonological awareness instruction with orthographic instruction, spelling, needs to attend to where kids are. Once a kid can take three or four sounds and blend them together, like listen to me. Uh, what's the word? Sack. Listen to me. What word is this? Book. Oh, black. That was three sounds and four sounds. Once they can do that, why are you going to do seven and eight sounds? You're just taxing short-term memory. You got to hold seven or eight sounds in your head and put them together. Why would you take instructional time to do that? Better than you should be reading real text and writing. And I would add going back to the, the leaves example we did a minute ago is, you know, for me, that was a lot easier than the, 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 the Sam, Sam, that other tasks that we were doing. And, and part of that, yeah, I'm, I'm a really proficient reader. I, at least I think I am. And, and, you know, so obviously I had more skill and training in that area, but there weren't directions for me to be keeping track of. It just was, what's the first sound? Okay. Let's connect it to a letter and then writing the letter. I'm so glad you brought that up. Here's some of the different things and wonders 
like I said, I give Haggerty props for at least keeping their instructions the same across the year. They don't try to get fancy. Wonders tries to get fancy. Listen to this. Touch your ear if you hear this sound. Say the sound. Don't say the sound. Clap. Say the word that belongs. Say the word that doesn't belong. Count the sound. You know, they're in an effort, I think, to make things interesting and motivating and game-like. Touch your ear. I think for many kids, what they don't, I think what they don't think about, the people who developed it is, um, the kids have to keep that in memory too. What am I supposed to do? Plus, listen to the stimuli and manipulate it. Why, why not use letters to, you know, to read and write, to, to focus on the phonology, then invent all these sort of, these tasks that the research don't support. The other thing I wanted to add was, oh, he said something that really triggered. I think where some of this came from, these tasks that are inordinately difficult, let's say, take, let's take deletion and substitution. I think, so those are the hardest oral only tasks a person can do in the realm of phonologic, phonemic awareness, okay? They are wonderful at discriminating amongst individuals. They're excellent assessment tasks in that they discriminate beautifully among people, even adults, who have good, bad, or ugly phoneme awareness. Somehow, so those are assessment tasks. All these, quote, PA skills come out of assessment. Just because something is a good assessment task in that it discriminates amongst a population doesn't mean you turn it into curriculum. 100%. And, and as I've, that's something I've actually spent a lot of time this last year thinking about is the way something is assessed doesn't necessarily mean it's the way we should teach it or the way it's, it's instructed. And, and so if we're measuring phonological awareness, yeah, it's, we're, we're going to do it orally. But that doesn't mean that that's the best way to teach right. and to advance it in a way that's going to be beneficial for, for students. And, and that's in other areas of the curriculum as well, I might add, not just phonological awareness. So two last findings from the research consensus is uh, that PA instruction should ask students to manipulate letters and that PA instruction should focus on one or two skills rather than three or more, and, and then especially blending and segmentation being heavy hitters there. So how did these curricula fare on those two uh, research findings? Well, the, uh, I'm using letters, manipulating letters with it. Zero, zip, zilch. Okay. Hegarty does no letters, okay, for those phonemic awareness tasks. I think they ask kids to, they do some alphabet tasks every, but it's not letters with PA. I think they work on alphabet, but they don't use letters with their phonological and phonemic awareness tasks at all, ever, zero, zip, zilch. Wonders, same finding. They do not use letters with their PA tasks. Now, what they do do, and this is where the Wonders people would be all cranky with me. In our phonics section of the day, we absolutely use letters, and they even often tie their phonics um, content for the day to their phonemic awareness content for the day, but it's two separate instructional sections. So there's again where I go, come on people, think about using time efficiently. You know, do the phonics with a, with a focus on the PA aspect, particularly segmenting and blending. 
you know, so I think where this got, went awry is because back in the day, there was something called analytic phonics where, well, back in the day, there was whole word look, say, look, look at that word, look, <laughs> there's another word, see. And so they, they really didn't do it a lot of sound grabbing phoneme connection there, right? And that's not going to cut it. It's an alphabetic language. You've got to attend to the phoneme. But the findings in the NRP, you get twice the bang for the buck. I'll just say that. You get twice the bang for the buck if you use letters with PA. When we're, we're talking improving outcomes, double is, a, that's a big number. Double is big. When you use letters, you get an effect size of 0.67, which is moving into the robust area of effect sizes, 0.67. If you don't use letters, it's 0.38. So the other thing was focusing on only one or two tasks. Oh, and you know, Hegarty does 10, if you count the alphabet, a day, 10 a day, different tasks. Um, Wonders is all over the map with different tasks. When the research from the NRP, now I'm strictly in the NRP here, and we saw nothing to contradict this in research that goes up to 2019. Um, in the NRP, so when you focused on one or two tasks, the effect sizes were 0 0.7, 0 0.71 actually, um, immediate uh, for one task. 0.79 for doing two tasks. And the effect size for doing more than two was 0.27. Wow. One or two, that's it, thank you. Check yeah. please, one or two tasks. The lag time differential, so in other words, later, working with kids later, two tasks, the effect size, the effect size for having done two tasks, lag time moving forward in the kid's life was 1.28. I mean, you get an effect size of over one, man, let's throw a party for one task. This is lag time, 0.55. For three or more tasks, 0.23. Wow. You see why I was like ripping parts of my hair out when I was looking back at the end? It had been a while since I looked at stuff like this. I just had a conceptual understanding in my head, right, of what, what PA should look like. And I, I would just encourage people, you know, uh, go back and read the NRP. Read Susan Brady. Susan Brady, I sit at her feet in terms of knowledge about phonemic awareness, phonological awareness. She's got it down. I mean, she's even saying that there's really not um, a strong need to do onset rhyme and rhyming and syllable level tasks for pre for um, kindergartners. Preschoolers who don't know any alphabet, sure. You know, if they don't know their alphabet yet. But Susan's, you know, sense is that, you know, once kids can represent some letters, have some alphabet knowledge, can either write them or know which letters make which sounds. I'm not talking about all 26. I'm talking about some. Heck, start working with, okay, this is a picture of, um, hang on a second. What's this, Jake? It's a pen. Okay, when you say pen. Pen. What's the first sound you hear in pen? Say pen. Pen. P -p -p what says p? He. Okay. You can start doing that with kindergartners as soon as they know some letters and you can do it all with pictures of things they know. And that's powerful. And, and so. Extremely powerful. The other, oh, I know what I wanted to add that I forgot about earlier is letters, the actual graphing 
So if I had you write, remember we did leads, right? And you wrote down all, mm-hmm. that's a powerful hook to hang the rest of the instruction on. It's sitting right there looking at you. That one line and you say to yourself, okay, so I know it's, what's that sound saying, Jake? Keep telling what point is Zach. I think it's a flip of your leg. Yeah. <laughs> I'm dyslexic. Yeah. Um, so, so tap that first sound. Uh, sorry, what was the word? I'm still laughing about the dyslexia. Leaves, it was leaves. <laughs> leaves, sorry. Leaves, oh. Okay, so say leaves. Leaves. Keep keep going, say leaves. Leaves. What do you hear at the end? What's S? Uh, S. Kids will say C, kids will say S, whatever. You know, and you can fool about as much as you think you should based on what the kids know, right? But having that all in front of them, having some letters in front of them gives them a memory hook for the rest of the tasks. They don't have to keep it all in memory. They can look at it and start there. Why would you rob kids of that when that's what you really want them to end up doing is being able to read and spell? Yeah. Read and spell meaning, spell meaning right. Absolutely. So to recap how the these curricula are aligning with research findings on the, the the first one. So the first one on can teachers deliver it? Yeah, that one was strong. Mixed on the phonological orthographic stuff, but the last two very very weak. Not connecting it. Not using letters to really manipulate the words and being able to start to connect that with text. Too many tasks. And the, the NRP of saying. Let's focus on a narrow amount of skills. And these are really doing the exact opposite. So in, in thinking about what this means for teachers, that's, that can be daunting. If you're a teacher and th- this is the curriculum yeah. that you're teaching, what, what recommendations would you give for a teacher of how do, how do you take that curriculum that's in front of you and really how would you recommend sort of adapting that or, or tweaking that to fit, you know, better where what, what students would, would benefit from? You will. I mean, I'm going to go full circle to what I was talking about when we first started today. And one is, if you as a teacher can develop an understanding of how, of, of reading development, by reading development, I'm, I'm giving it a fairly narrow um, definition of the, uh, what Linnea Ari would call the, the ability to read words, okay? The ability to access the text. Yes, comprehension is the point of reading. Yes, oral language is important. Yes, got, I got it, got it, duly noted. But reading is, is visual. You have to access the text to make the process happen, right? So how do we help kids develop the ability to read words in text, right? Primary grade teachers, well, anybody, frankly, any teacher needs to have an understanding of how that development happens, how that process develops in children. And so if you know that the first thing kids need to develop is some alphabet knowledge, letter name, letter sound. And if you know that the pho- that's the orthographic aspect, the phonological aspect is, is the first step is hearing initial sounds, being able to attend to segment initial sounds. Then you work on ending sounds. Then finally you go for medial sounds and all the way you're working on blending and segmenting with letters. Okay. If you, if you know that that's what needs to happen, that that's what research we know for research does happen and that kids can and can't do certain things at certain 
stages of that development or phases of that development. Then you look at your materials and you go, why the heck am I trying to get kids to delete phonemes in even in April in kindergarten? I'm not going to do that one. And instead, I'm going to have kids do X, Y, Z, which would, I, would, I would push um, working on high-frequency words like said, they, go, is, you know, et cetera. I would push working on that and then throwing in some words where they have to blend it segment for, with, via writing. And that's pretty powerful there of, you know, that we're, we're not, we're, we're, we're talking even, even beginning kindergarten, you can still, let's take the word, let's isolate the first sound. Okay, now let me show you what that letter is. We haven't learned this yet, but this letter is M, you know, and M says M. Mm. And to me, it sounds like, you know, doing tasks like that much more consistently and blending and segment, isolating, blending, segmenting, connecting it to what it looks like in print and having a, a responsive focus on on how your students are performing and those i mean that's that's the steps I, that are going to be very beneficial thank you jake and you know i would just tell tell our listeners that you know if you go on to our website uurc.org again it's uurc.org and if you look on the educators tab and you look at you steps and look at our early steps curriculum you will see a curriculum that is a beautiful um, research-based curriculum for anywhere from preschool we use it for at-risk first graders and even at-risk junior high kids who are refugees from you know war-torn countries you know what i'm saying who are really they're beginning readers in english and maybe in any language right like they didn't learn to read in their home language but that curriculum does exactly what we're talking about here it starts with Alphabet knowledge, letter sound knowledge, right? You don't have to have all of them. It's 16 now. Then you can start to learn to read. If you knew, if you know 16 lowercase, lowercase letter names, because what's in print? It's all lowercase, right? Just about, if you know 16 lowercase alphabet letters, names and sounds, you could start to learn to read. I would urge people, we've got some beautiful resources for teachers online. And if you're talking about beginning readers, I would look under the early steps curriculum. We've got a full word study curriculum that emphasizes decoding, high frequency words, phonemic awareness, uh, 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 and spelling. Okay, it's all there. We've got scripts for it. And it's free. Okay, so I would say, Go there, look at some of that stuff, and you know you can't you can't eat an elephant all at once. So, Dr. Brown, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure listeners have learned uh, a lot a lot as well. Um, so, thanks thanks for joining us on the show, Dr. Brown. Our last question is, what makes a good teacher? Fascinating. Oh my. Well, I think teaching good teaching is both science and art. I'd give the nod to science because we really, you know, it's like asking what makes a good doctor in some ways, you know, like it's, it's science and art, you know, you got to have both. And, uh, the science part, I think, you know, we just need to know all we can and continue learning all we can about, you know, what, how does science help us know what to do? Right. 
doesn't tell us everything. There are certainly huge gaps where there, where there is no science, right? And I think that's where the art comes in at that point. The art is trusting your gut and your heart and your anecdotal experience to know where to go to fill the gaps. I mean, some of the things that we've inserted into our intervention models came about through looking at the science. Okay, we should do this, this, and this, and then say, yeah, but if we do this right here, and then we try it out with kids. And then we say, oh, okay, change it like this, change it like that. You're never going to get science telling you everything what to do as a teacher. You got to get used to that. But doesn't mean you can't fill in with heart and heart, I guess you could say, from there. Dr. Kathleen Brown, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Oh, and thank you, Jake. This has been just a fabulous morning. Hey, big thanks to Dr. Kathleen Brown for joining me on the show. Here are a few takeaways from the episode that I had. My major takeaway is about curriculum. We need to know what is in our curriculum. Just like healthy eating involves a knowledge of what things should and shouldn't go into our bodies, it also involves us actually reviewing the things that we eat and looking at individual labels and across multiple labels to determine at the macro level, is our diet balanced enough to be able to be healthy? We need to know what is in our curriculum and we need to know it like the back of our hand. We need to understand the scope and sequence. We need to understand the scope and sequence. We need to understand how skills build from one to another. We need to understand how the curriculum aligns with the core and where it might be a little bit heavy on the core and where there might be gaps. We also need to understand the core and understand how the core works and how the core aligns with itself and aligns with cognitive science and with research-based practices. We need to understand how do skills build one onto another. We need to understand what that curriculum looks like in the grade below and in the grade above. And we need to know and understand how much time the curriculum is suggesting to devote to specific skills. And we need to think critically about whether those minutes need adjustment for our particular group of readers. There's a lot of things with curriculum, but I, I, I highly recommend spending some time to just look at your curriculum because knowing the curriculum is a major step to having good instruction. We cannot think that curriculum is the same as instruction. And I see those conflated from time to time where curriculum and instruction are sort of assumed to be the same thing. And in, in reality, you and I both know that they're actually quite different. Curriculum is, is a tool. And I, I mean that in the Vygotskyan sense of a tool. It, it, curriculum, it's a tool in the environment that is meant to mediate the thinking of the learner via instruction from the teacher, the teacher being a more knowledgeable other. So good instruction will make a curriculum better and poor instruction will water down that curriculum. But the curriculum in and of itself is, is just an artifact in the environment. Um, it can help or it can hinder, but that depends on the way that the teacher is using it. And that comes down to the macro decisions and the micro decisions of the teacher that influence learning outcomes. And, and those decisions uh, for the teacher, they hinge on knowing how to teach, on knowing what to teach, and on understanding the curriculum inside and out to make sure 
that the instruction that is in the curriculum is adapted for the students that are being taught. That is all I have today. Thank you very much for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend. This is Jake Downs, and until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better. (laughs) 